Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. This, of course, is Revelation chapter 18, verse 10, the end times vision of the great empire of Babylon falling in the judgment, surrendering to the kingdom of God and the new Jerusalem. And that is our subject for today's podcast. I'm Cole Fakes. I'm here with Terry Fakes. And as we continue our study of the empires, we seamlessly pass from Assyria into Babylon, maybe the most famous of all the ancient empires in the Bible. That's true. And it's uh, it's an empire like the Assyrian Empire that we talked about in our last episode in this sense. They actually had more than one high point. If you remember, the Assyrians had the Assyrian Empire in the second millennium BC, and then the Neo-Assyrian Empire in what we think of as biblical history, where they interacted with the Israelites. The Babylonian Empire is the same way. They have a very famous king and dynasty in the second millennium BC, and then, of course, interact with biblical history in the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Yeah, Babylon in some ways spans the entire Bible. We're going to talk a little bit about why that might be, uh, particularly considering that the height of historical Babylon is relatively short, but it plays Uh a huge role in the Bible. You have the book of Genesis, you have the exile and everything that revolves around that in the Old Testament. You have the book of Revelation. I mean, Babylon is running all the way through the Bible. And to understand that, we have to go back way into history into the time around the second millennium BC. And Babylon appears in the Bible in the very opening pages. In Genesis chapter 10, you get the king, the mighty warrior before the Lord, Nimrod, who is founding societies in the plain of Shinar. And this is uh, commonly called the table of nations in Mm -hmm. the Bible. It's a history of all the nations of that part of the world after the flood. So there's a chronology of the sons of Noah, their descendants, Nimrod, who we talked about last week, starts uh, cities that we would consider the major power centers of the ancient world. Right. But the most famous city that Nimrod starts is a city called Babel. And in Genesis chapter 11, you zoom into the building of the Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel is interesting historically, which we'll come to this, where exactly was this tower? And and do we have any evidence of this tower? But in terms of the literary story and what it kicks off in the Bible, the story of Babel is one of those controlling narratives that's going to run for all of Scripture, especially... Up to, and I know we've talked about this on the podcast before, the reversal story of Babel is the story of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So, yes. so you have, from the very beginning, humanity rebelling against God. You have this archetype ruler, Nimrod, who sets himself up against God. And then over the whole course of the biblical storyline, you have playing on that theme and a reversal of that theme when God scatters his people to take the gospel across the face of the earth. And so this is one of those paradigmatic stories in Genesis, and it is about Babylon. So Babel and Babylon essentially are the same word. There's an indication from the geography and from the surrounding towns that this is supposed to be a founding of Babylon. And Uh we can start to piece together details of how this might fit with what else we know about Babylon from the historical record. 
Exactly. I mean, leaving the archaeology aside, uh, in the sense that this is probably some kind of ziggurat in Babel. The, the important thing there, though, is the hubris or the pride of Nimrod and the pride of humanity to build a temple to the heavens and to become gods themselves. And so, as you pointed out, for some reason, and we'll talk about this before we finish, Babylon is the paradigm for the, what I'd call the anti-Jerusalem. I mean, if Jerusalem is the city of God, Babylon is the poster child for the city not of God. And it right. starts right there with the Tower of Babel, with the pride of humanity. Well, it starts with Nimrod, who is a king against God, in some ways mm -hmm. a proto-Nebuchadnezzar. And there's a lot of speculation as to who Nimrod might have been. I think some people think that maybe Gilgamesh is kind of a similar figure. In right. terms of the history, the old Babylonian Empire starts later, sometime around 1900 BC, going down to about 1600 BC. This is in the wake of the Sumerian Empire. And again, the plain of Shinar and the word Sumer are related words. Right. This is the time of the first great people groups in that fertile crescent part of the world by the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. This kingdom of the Sumerian Empire is, is centered around the city of Ur, which we mentioned last time, is a city where the Assyrian Empire has some important temples. Of course, the last Assyrian king is going to make his way towards the city right. of Ur, and um, you're going to have a confluence of the gods of the Sumerians in ancient Ur and the Assyrians in the Neo-Assyrian Empire. The Babylonians, though, actually have a little bit different origin story. The first Babylonians are Amorites rather than Akkadians. And you'll remember the first great king that the Assyrians think of is Sargon of Akkad, who's an Akkadian king. Right. The Babylonians, for all the similarities with the Assyrians and the kind of blending of those empires that happens later in history, are are typically thought to be a different people group. The Amorites are a Semitic people group. Uh, as opposed to the Akkadians, which are not a Semitic people group, putting them maybe originating more in the area of Syria rather right. than down closer to the Persian Gulf. And which the be, most, go ahead. Which I guess to put it in context is the Akkadians would be more like we think of Iraq today. And you were talking about then the Babylonians coming from more Syrian stock. And I think that's important right. for your story. And the people groups are going to change, as we'll get to, uh, throughout the different stages of the Babylonian Empire. Mm -hmm. But the most famous king from this period is Hammurabi. And everybody that's taken a Western Civ course or you know high school world history is going to remember Hammurabi because he lives in the 18th century BC. His code, his great law code, is one of the foundational documents uh, in the history of the world. This is not the oldest law code that we have. The, the oldest right. extant law code is actually the code of Ur-Namu, who is a king of the Sumerian Empire in the city of mm -hmm. Ur. And this is actually about 300 years older than the, than the code of Hammurabi. But there's a stela, which is a giant stone. So we say stela, it's a big stone that has markings. Hieroglyphics can have cuneiforms. And it's a, it's a record of something that happened. And you find these all over the place. And the one that, that, that has the clearest account of the Code of Hammurabi was rediscovered in 1901 in Susa, which is in present-day Iran. And it had been taken there about 600 years after its creation. 
and it had been copied and copied and copied, and, and there are several uh, extant versions. But this stila was a, essentially their version of like a constitution or a bill of rights. It laid out, mm -hmm. here's the way we're going to live together as a community. And it is the first law code actually to establish an eye for an eye, or so sometimes what's called the lex talionis, which is a reciprocity Correct. between if you do this to me, I'll do the same thing back to you. Whereas in the other law codes of the day, you had monetary compensation for something that's gone wrong. So if you injure somebody, you had to pay a fine. Here, if you injure somebody, they get to injure you back in a similar way. And of course, this is something that Jesus brings up. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. This is something that also shows up in the Hebrew law code. But mm -hmm. it's something that would have been well understood in the, in the ancient Middle East. But... As notable as Hammurabi is, Babylon itself was not a world empire until much, much, much later. In fact, more than a thousand years later before you get a real true Babylonian empire. What's interesting, though, is Babylon has a cultural sophistication that people right. want to parrot. They want to be a part of. They want to look Babylonian. Their art, their building, their worship, their gods— their culture is something really potent, such that the Assyrian Empire, which by historical accounts is a bigger, more powerful empire, is constantly trying to look Babylonian. Babylon mm -hmm. itself is a very important capital, probably the number two city in the Assyrian Empire. They always have some kind of king or figurehead there, even though they've conquered it. And like the Romans will adopt many of the customs of the Greeks— the Assyrians right. are, uh, they're adopting many of the customs and mythologies of the Babylonians. But as we ended our podcast last time, what happens is you get from the time of Ashurbanipal, very weak Assyrian kings. You have rapid succession, you have people dying, you have brothers who are vying for the throne of all of Assyria, you've got older brother main king in uh, Assyria, in Nineveh, maybe. And then you have younger brother or number two brother who is over in Babylon, and they're constantly vying for each other. But right. what happens is there's a family who is growing up in the city of Uruk, which is another ancient city. And probably you have a governor or some high city official in Uruk who decides that in the midst of these kind of dynastic changes that are going on in Assyria— He's going to rise up against them and turn Uruk into a kind of city-state, revive the Babylonian, the ancient Babylonian Empire, and things do not go well. He is killed. His revolution is put down. He's dragged through the streets and made an example of. However, his son, whose name is Nabopolassar, is a very shrewd, very gifted military commander. Mm -hmm. And Nabopolassar essentially rounds up an army— he does rebuff the Assyrians. They're spread pretty thin. Their great military heyday is over. He's able to repulse them, go to Babylon, make himself the king of Babylon, and eventually march an army all the way up to challenge the Assyrian Empire across the entire Fertile Crescent. And where we left it last time is he's conquered Assyria. He's pushed the last king of Assyria back to Haran, back to a place called Carchemish, which is over closer to the Mediterranean. And he is marching his army towards the remnants of Assyria who have called upon Egypt 
The Egyptian army has come up. They've killed Josiah in the Battle of Armageddon, mm-hmm. and they are pitching a, a, a battle against that coalition at Carchemish. Well, Nabopolassar has to go back to Babylon to tend to the duties that he has there, and he hands over the military command of his army to his son, the crown prince, whose name is Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is one of the most famous people in history, one of the most famous figures, kings, rulers, takes on many mythological stories outside of the Bible. He's a very uh, colorful character in history. And the first thing that we hear about him actually uh, outside of the Bible is that his father makes a record about the crown prince. and And the first thing he says about him is that he is taking part in rebuilding the temple to Marduk. This is called the Esagila. The, the Esagila is an ancient temple to Marduk, who is the who is the top of the Babylonian pantheon. And in some ways, this complex where the Esagila, which is a temple, and you have what's called the uh, Atemenanki, which is a ziggurat, a giant tower, step tower, mm-hmm. up to the heavens, is a, a revision of the Tower of Babel story. So when we say that, right. that Nebuchadnezzar is kind of a second coming of Nimrod, this is all part of that story. He's rebuilding uh-huh. the temple. In some ways, we would say he's re- rebuilding the Tower of Babel. Right. And he is setting up uh, his god Marduk as the, as the main god. And he is portrayed as being a very devout servant, almost a priest, of Marduk. So he is a gifted military commander. He takes his army. He wins the Battle of Carchemish. He expels the Egyptians out of what we consider the Holy Land and pushes them back into Egypt, finishes off the Assyrian Empire. And in the following year, he takes the whole land of Judah as a vassal state. And as we mentioned, this is when he takes tribute from the capital, from the city of Jerusalem, including Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, as they'll be known in Babylon, and takes them back to Babylon. Now, what's interesting here is this is before Nebuchadnezzar is made king of Babylon, and it's 20 years before the conquering of Jerusalem, which we know as the big exile, destruction of the temple that Nebuchadnezzar will be known for later. But there's 20 years of Nebuchadnezzar's rise that take place before he conquers Jerusalem. And in that period, Jerusalem is simply a tribute-paying state under the thumb of Babylon. Some autonomy, they have a puppet king, uh, but not total autonomy. They're paying tribute, they're being squeezed, they are a buffer against Egypt, And they live in this for a few years, and they're constantly trying to throw off Babylonian rule. So, for example, in in 597, or in in the year 600, uh, Babylon loses. They have to retreat against an army from Egypt, and Jerusalem declares that they are no longer under Babylonian rule. Nebuchadnezzar has to come back in 597, conquers them again, takes tribute again, they're under the thumb of Babylon. Ten years later, the same thing happens. They throw off Babylonian rule. He comes back, and this time, he raises the city of Jerusalem to the ground, burns the temple, destroys it. It is, next to the Exodus, the other central pole of the Old Testament. 
and he sends Judah into exile. And that's where many of the stories of the Old Testament culminate. Exactly. You know, and I have some sympathy for the kings of Judah in that time period, but they make a, a poor choice in that for a while, Egypt will be in the ascendant, as you said, and they'll march north right through Israel, what's modern day Israel, and they'll say to the king there, are you with us? And the king will say, you betcha. Of course, I'm with you and I will pay you taxes and, you know, go. I'm, I'm all for the Egyptians. And then, of course, Nebuchadnezzar will battle them and then the Babylonians will be ascended. He'll come marching south through what's modern day Israel. And I'll say, all right, are you on my side? And they go, well, of course, we're on your side and uh, we'll start paying you taxes. And they're caught in between these two. The interesting thing to me, Cole, is because the Bible story is less about the geopolitics and more about what God is doing through this. And we saw with Hezekiah in our last lesson that he didn't pick Assyria or Egypt. He picked God, and God took care of them. Unfortunately for Judah, they they try to seek a political solution, and they they picked Egypt and unfortunately, Nebuchadnezzar was the stronger and eventually destroyed them. Uh, and the sad thing is, is uh, they they shouldn't have picked either one, and they should have stuck with God. Right. And one of the dynamics in the Old Testament that you see is that there are real geopolitical pressures. There are real right. economic pressures, famines, lack of military, strength of military that determine what Israel is doing. I mean, in, in some sense— they are running a real geopolitics, and right. they are trying to figure out what their best interests are. And unfortunately, they do choose wrong a lot. And, a lot. and it's not as though, you know, the way we think of U.S. foreign policy or Europe or something today where you're kind of predicting on different variables and you're trying to do what's in the best interest of the country. Most of the time when this happens in Judah— you have prophets who are telling them what to do. So, so Jeremiah, for example, right. is telling them, don't ally yourselves with Egypt. Do not do this. Right. Not because they want to forever be vassals of Babylon, Babylon. But, right. but God is essentially speaking wisdom to them, saying, don't trust in the might of Egypt. Don't trust in the might of horses. Trust in the Lord your God. Unfortunately, though, kings like Zedekiah are not God-fearing men. They don't listen to the advice of the prophets. They don't listen to God. And they make the wrong decision over and over and over again. They find themselves on the wrong end of the power struggle in the Middle East. That's true. And you know, that's still true today. And not to be on a sad note here, but nations do indeed prosper or suffer for the decisions of their rulers. That was true in ancient times, and it's still, still true today. Now, the beauty of this is God never leaves his people. And even with the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile to Babylon, we know the rest of that story is the faithful remnant returns and God is faithful to his people. Nevertheless, there is a lot of suffering because of, of uh, poor decisions by ungodly rulers in that time. But things are going great for Nebuchadnezzar. At that point, he's kind of ruler of, of all that he surveys, and he goes back to Babylon, and he begins to, to be a builder. I mean, we still have in the Berlin Museum some of the Ishtar Gate, uh, which are just beautiful, huge walls with the, uh, with the lions on them, and, and he beautifies Babylon. He's got a wife 
who uh, Amidas is her name, and she wasn't born on the plain of Babylon. She was born in the hill country. And according to uh, the records, she was just sad because it was kind of ugly there on the plain. You know, she's out on the prairie, like where we live. And he decides, well, I want you to feel at home. And so he builds what came to be known as the Hanging Gardens of Babylon as a gift to his wife. So she would feel like she was in the forest. And and it's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So Nebuchadnezzar, after defeating the Assyrians and pushing the Egyptians back, and he's riding high at that point. That's probably, would you say, Cole, that's the peak of the Babylonian Empire? It certainly is. His his reign is the peak of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. He is the most powerful king. He's the most gifted ruler. But he's an incredibly gifted administrator. He yes. builds physically temples, the Hanging Gardens, although some people think that the Hanging Gardens were actually in Nineveh, which is kind of an interesting thesis. Uh-huh. Um, he rebuilds the infrastructure, the palaces, the government buildings of Babylon, but he also builds the culture of Babylon. So at this point, Babylon is the biggest city, not just in the world, but the biggest city that has ever existed in the world. Maybe a quarter of a million people are living in Babylon at this time. And it truly is a global city. They have exports from all over the world. They have people paying them tribute. They have people that have come from all over their conquered areas that they've brought back to Babylon. So it's kind of a melting pot in the way that we would describe it today. You have people in the government like Daniel and his three friends, but you have people from the far east, from the south, from as far north as Turkey, who are all in this capital city together. And so Nebuchadnezzar builds a thriving metropolis, a huge, huge, overbearing city, Babylon. And this goes a long way to explain why Babylon becomes as significant as it is in the Bible. At the end of the book of 2 Kings, you have a narration of the fall of Jerusalem. And in some ways, what you have is the the eclipse of Jerusalem for Babylon. And I'll read you part of this because uh, we can't underestimate how significant the destruction of the temple is as a closing period for the golden age of Israel. And so in 2 Kings chapter 25, it says, In the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. Then they built siege works all around it, and the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah, who is their puppet king, if you remember. They set Zedekiah on the throne. He rebels. And on the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food and there was a breach made in the wall. And the Chaldeans pursue the king and they overtake him in the plains of Jericho and they're going to execute his family. They're going to drag him back to Babylon in chains. And actually there is there is extant a almost like a food order for Zedekiah in uh-huh. the palace of Babylon. It's one of those great outside the Bible confirmations of what the Bible says that that uh, Jehoiakim is in Babylon and he is uh, he is eating at the king's table just like the Bible says he is. Mm-hmm. And uh, when they take the people out of Jerusalem, we have several books of the Bible that essentially chronicle what happened even after the exile. 
But back in Jerusalem, the, the, the results are pretty grim. They go into the temple, the captain of the guard, the Nebuzaradan, he comes in and raises the temple to the ground, breaks down the walls, strips off the bronze. He takes the vessels of the temple, all the gold and the bronze that have been in there from the time of Solomon. They strip that off. They take it back to Babylon. They burn it. They don't leave a single stone stacked on another. And uh, that is the end of the monarchy in Jerusalem until God begins to bring the people back in the next period in the time mm -hmm. of Nehemiah, which we'll cover when we get to our Persian episode. But back in Babylon, this really is a golden age for Nebuchadnezzar. And we are so fortunate to have a chronicle of what happens during this time in the book of Daniel. So as we mentioned, Daniel is taken maybe in 605 in the first occurrence of Babylon exerting their control over Jerusalem. Daniel and his friends are part of the nobility. They're upper class. They're connected. They are very strategically chosen to be taken back to Babylon. And in Daniel chapter one, what you realize is Babylon is conducting a program of assimilation for hmm. these kids that they take from all over the empire. They're learning Babylonian mythology, literature. They're learning uh, how to behave in the capital. They're being trained up for government work. They are eating at the king's table. And this is a really shrewd way of subjugating your enemies. I mean, this, this, mm -hmm. is, this kind of forced assimilation ensures that, one, you don't have a lot of rebellions because you have captives, basically. Right. Two, once these kids are effectively assimilated and re repurposed into the Babylonian state machine— they're the ones who are going to be interfacing with some of these conquered people groups. So now instead of just having an evil Babylonian, you have right. Daniel and his three friends, in theory, who are mm -hmm. managing the portfolio of the Middle East. Right. So th this is really a shrewd strategy. This is something that Babylon and Assyria both did. They make them worship the Babylonian gods. They turn them into good little Babylonians. And then they utilize them to keep their empire in line afterwards. Well, as you know from the book of Daniel, this actually doesn't really go as planned with Daniel and his three friends. They refuse to be assimilated into Babylon. They mm -hmm. stay true to the God of Israel. They stay true, faithful Jews. And in chapter one, that starts with refusing the food that the king wants to give them to eat, and they are healthy. They're promoted to positions of power. And for the next four chapters of Daniel, we get a really interesting insight into Nebuchadnezzar. So, we have a figure in the Bible, like Nebuchadnezzar, like Cyrus, like Sennacherib, who we know from outside the Bible, but we get some very interesting details inside the Bible about what these people are like. In chapter 2 of Daniel, you see that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that is terrifying for him, and he calls together all the courtiers and all the magicians, and he says, hey, I need you guys to interpret this dream. They say... What's tell us the dream? We'll give you the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar, being a pretty shrewd guy, says, "No, you tell me the dream." Actually, you know, if you're so smart and you you can interpret, why don't why don't you just tell me the dream and the interpretation? Well, it turns out that none of the magicians can do this. They word gets out that they're going to be killed, and Daniel and his three friends begin to pray that God would give them a interpretation of this dream, and they do. And this is Daniel's first confrontation with Nebuchadnezzar. Mm -hmm. 
is he comes in and he says, there is a God in heaven, the, the Lord God of the Jews, who is going to make this known to you. And sure enough, he does. Now, one of the issues, and you see this in Daniel's entire life, is you have the most powerful person in the world. Somebody who, at this point, he hasn't even conquered uh, the city of Jerusalem yet, but he's conquered most of the known world in this right. in this part of the world at the time. And the message that Daniel is going to give to him is essentially, your kingdom is going to fall. Mm-hmm. So he gives him he, the, the, the dream, essentially is laying out the future empires leading up to Christ, and that Babylon is going to fall, and a more powerful empire, and then another, and then another, until the time of the Lord's Messiah. And you get an oscillation between Nebuchadnezzar understanding and embracing what God is saying, uh-huh. and this overbearing, megalomaniac drive to make all the world subject to his rule. Chapter 3 sets up a giant golden image of himself, wants everybody to worship it. Of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego won't worship it, so he throws them in the fiery furnace, and they're saved. There's another person in there, and Nebuchadnezzar praises the God of Israel for delivering his people and makes everybody worship God. Well, then Nebuchadnezzar goes back, and he goes crazy for a while, and then God humbles him, and he confesses that God is the true God. Uh, you go from that to basically the decree that he sends out over all the world that this God is worth following and serving. We get we don't get a picture like that of any other foreign ruler. This is the most intimate portrait of a foreign ruler that we get anywhere in the Bible. It really is remarkable. I mean, in the sense that, in several senses, is that you get uh, Daniel, who remains faithful to God. You get Nebuchadnezzar, who's the ultimate man of the world with power and fame, and uh, he represents the you know the pride of humanity, if you will. And yet, you see these cracks in the armor where he acknowledges God's greatness and. We don't know how the story ends with Nebuchadnezzar. We just know that he constantly battles his power versus God's power. But I think the last word we may have of him is the decree that he issues at the end of chapter four of Daniel, which by its, on its own to me, Cole, is remarkable. Here you have a pagan ruler who's going to destroy Jerusalem, and he's quoted in the Bible. And the last quote I suppose we have from him is one where he does acknowledge God's greatness. Yeah, this is a remarkable historical artifact. Even if if this were not the Bible, we would think this was one of the most amazing uh, discoveries about ancient Babylon. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 34, it says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lift my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. 
What an amazing thing to record Nebuchadnezzar saying. It really is. Uh, and again, it's tantalizing that that's the last thing that we know of, of Nebuchadnezzar saying. And you have to wonder, well, did he truly uh, come to acknowledge the God of heaven? Uh, or did he, you know, kind of like Pharaoh does in the in the story of the Exodus, did he then harden his heart, if you will, and go back? But the fact that you have that kind of quotation uh, of an edict in the Bible, if uh, like you said, Cole, if this weren't the Bible, that would be huge to have that firsthand uh, testimony from Nebuchadnezzar. Unfortunately, you know, we're saying if this weren't the Bible, unfortunately, since it's in the Bible, it's not treated with the seriousness uh, right. that it is if it were just a stila that was found somewhere. But uh, you have to remember that the Bible, obviously, we believe is the inspired word of God. But it is also an ancient testament to mm -hmm. what was happening in the world, and certainly told through the lens of the Jews and what they thought and what they believed. But uh, these are some of our best ancient sources about what was going on. The book of Daniel, if you remember from our Bible overview of the book of Daniel, there's a lot of dispute about when Daniel was written. It spans a very big portion of history. It talks about some of the most important people of this time period up close, very personally. Uh, people think that it was written maybe uh, in the second century even. But uh, if we just take Daniel's word for it, and we take the the tradition of the church, this is a record of what was really happening in Babylon and in Persia at a really pivotal time in history. Yes, and you know, one of the things, uh, I don't need any convincing that this is God's Word, but one of the things I think you have to take seriously if you're a secular scholar is the amount of detail and what's actually said here. In other words, if you just read this story of Nebuchadnezzar, it hangs together. It makes sense. Uh, it doesn't read to me like mythological material. And there are an awful lot of details. In fact, in the next chapter, when we get to the uh, his successors, it's going to read ring very true, but it's also going to ring like somebody was an eyewitness to this, that there's an awful lot of detail here. So I, I do think that this is a very credible historical source. And I think it's a phenomenal historical source. It gives us an insight into Nebuchadnezzar, the person, because historically, we usually know about the achievements of a ruler. We don't usually know very much about the ruler themselves, but the Bible gives us a portrait of the man, not just the king. Nebuchadnezzar rules for almost 40 years, is a long mm -hmm. reign, a long tenure, and Babylon reaches its peak during his rule. Like the Assyrian Empire, things go pretty quickly downhill after Nebuchadnezzar dies. There's a succession. There are some crises in the empire. But essentially, you have a rapid downfall of Babylon because of some emerging contenders on the world stage. Exactly. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's reign, just to put this in perspective, ends in 571 B.C., and the next chapter of Daniel records the fall of Babylon in 539. So 32 years after Nebuchadnezzar's death, the Neo-Babylonian Empire is at its peak. It ceases to exist. That is an unbelievably quick downfall. Uh, it's sort of like the fall of the Soviet Union in our 
recent historical memory is it seemed like it was strong one day and the next day it's crumbling. Well, that's what happened with Babylon. The last king of Babylon coal is a guy named Nabonidus. Nabonidus uh, acquired the throne just a few years after Nebuchadnezzar. He wasn't related to Nebuchadnezzar. There was a Nebuchadnezzar, as powerful a king as he was, he really didn't secure his legacy. I mean, he made Babylon great. He made the culture great. But he really didn't secure his own personal legacy with the, the rulers that followed after him. Nabonidus rules from 556 to 539. So he presides over the last 17 years of the Babylonian Empire at a very quick uh, descent. Nabonidus probably gained the throne because he married uh, one of the daughters of Nebuchadnezzar. So he's not in the family, and he manages to grab the, the throne, and he was a religious reformer. He really culturally does not think Marduk is the greatest god. In fact, he spends a lot of time trying to raise the moon god, Sin, to the highest level. Well, needless to say, he comes in and he wants to go against the tide of Babylonian culture. So the priests are against him, the rulers are against him, and, and you have turmoil, cultural turmoil in Babylon during this time. And obviously, with all their internal focus, their foreign policy begins to fall apart. Because when Babylon falls, it's going to seem like it happened overnight and out of the blue. But really, Nabonidus' focus on internal uh, dissent, a lot of which he generated, is going to make them weak in the foreign sphere. Nabonidus, apparently the stress of this was a little too much for Nabonidus because about four years after he took the throne, he goes into self-imposed exile for 10 years. Here's what I think, Cole. I don't know what you think, but I think he went away uh, for and checked himself in for some mental problems. And a lot of historians think that he had a mental breakdown and he went off to like Turkey to live for 10 years uh, when he's supposed to be running the Babylonian Empire and leaves. Yeah. Uh, what do you think? I mean, I think there's evidence there that he, again, he stays king, but he checks himself in and is gone for 10 years. Yeah, this is one of the truly weird developments in these ancient empires. You have the Babylonian king, who's a, who's a, emperor at this point, leave the capital, the citadel, and go off into essentially kind of the wilderness, into kind of a backwater area. And what makes people really upset about this is not just that he's not really a military leader, he's not really leading anything at this point, he has kind of a figurehead in his, in his spot, but that the Babylonian king was not just a military or political leader, he was a religious leader. So think about right. Nebuchadnezzar, he's rebuilding the Esagila, he is paying tribute to Marduk. This Nabonidus is not interested in the Babylonian gods. And one of the things that the king was required to do was a yearly ceremony to the gods. And this was one of the things that people believed would keep the empire safe, keep it powerful, right. keep it going. And so for 10 years, he skips this yearly ritual. And the religious people in the empire are starting to think, this is not good for the future of Babylon. The gods are not pleased. They're not on our side. We're not giving them their due. 
this could spell disaster for Babylon. And it turns out, whether it's because of that or not, it does spell disaster for Babylon. That's really true. Uh, in fact, I think if we could go back and ask a Babylonian, what happened? How did Babylon, you know, the peak of its power and you know, under Nebuchadnezzar, and 30 years later, it's conquered. They would say that we had this horrible King Nabonidus who turned his back on Marduk, our God. And as a result of that, Marduk withdrew his favor and our enemies were able to overcome us. And so I think that's what they would say. From our perspective, it's uh, it isn't going to surprise you that if your king leaves and puts in a, an acting person in his place, his son named Belshazzar, that uh, nothing's going to get done Nobody's leading the armies, and things are just in the world are not going Babylon's way. So we know, actually, when we see the fall of the Babylonian Empire, it's not Nabonidus we see, it's his son Belshazzar. Belshazzar is the regent. He's acting on behalf of his father. So he doesn't really have the authority of king, but he's left in charge as kind of a caretaker. It would be like the most powerful nation in the world all of a sudden just shutting down all its embassies. and quitting doing anything with anybody in the world and do that for 10 or 15 years. And the next thing you know, you're, you're going to get conquered. And that's exactly what happens to them. But we get a ringside seat on that, Cole, because in Daniel chapter 5, it opens with Belshazzar having a feast, a drunken festival, while they are being besieged by a, an opposing army. And he calls to bring out the gold plates that Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem, and he begins to mock the gods and uh, is having this drunken feast. And we get an eyewitness account of the fall in Daniel chapter 5. Yeah, this is a fascinating scene because it matches up so well with what actually uh, we know outside of the Bible happens to Babylon. This this really does ring true. But the accounts of the fall of Babylon happen from outside of Babylon. Here we have an account of the fall of Babylon from inside Babylon. And so, as you said, they're having this feast. They bring in the gold vessels that have been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines drank from them. And they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood, it says. Well, immediately after this happens, fingers of a human hand appear and write on the plaster of the wall in the king's palace. And the king sees the hand as it's writing and his, his color changed, it said, and his thoughts alarmed him and his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. And the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the astrologers, the wise men of Babylon. So you notice that the beginning of the time in Babylon and the end of the time in Babylon are exactly the same. Right. Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation, I will clothe them in purple and have gold chain around his neck. This is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar promised in right. Daniel chapter two. They came in, they can't read it, they can't figure out what it's saying. He's greatly alarmed. And the queen comes into the banqueting hall and says, uh, There's a guy who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. And in the days of your father, uh, and King Nebuchadnezzar, he was able to outwit all these enchanters and magicians and interpret dreams and messages from the gods. And so he says, okay, we'll get this guy in here. 
So Daniel comes in and Daniel is able to look upon the wall and he refuses all the gifts uh, that that, uh, Belshazzar is going to give him. And he interprets the, the, the writing on the wall. And this is the famous passage where the writing says, many, many, many tekel parson. And he says, this is the interpretation. God has numbered your days and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed in purple. But that very night, the king, Belshazzar, uh, of the Chaldeans was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom. So this fits actually with what we read about in the fall of Babylon outside of the Bible, that there were people, it was a festival time, and the Medes mm-hmm. had gathered to besiege the kingdom. And the kingdom is both, the, the city is so big, and they thought it was so impregnable. And these parties, these festivals were so enrapturing that the city is besieged and broken into before the people at this royal party even know that there's a threat. Right. And so as they are celebrating, of course, this hand writes on the wall, and now they know there's a problem. And as they realize that, the Medes come in and they conquer Babylon. They kill Belshazzar, and they take over the city. And they become, almost immediately, the ruling power in the region. Absolutely. And and there come... Uh, the story of the Persians, which will be our next episode. But it's it's amazing reading that, Cole, uh, having knowing about Nebuchadnezzar and a short time later seeing this ignominious end to one of the more powerful kingdoms on earth. And typically, Babylon would just fade into the pages of history at that point. And yet, Babylon, as you you mentioned earlier, endures as a powerful symbol throughout time, but especially through the Bible. And so here's the question I have as kind of a takeaway as we sort of pause our story there and and we'll visit the Persians in our next episode. But why do you think Babylon shows up in that passage in the book of Revelation instead of Nineveh and the Assyrians or Rome? And the Romans. Why is Babylon itself such an enduring symbol of opposition to God or evil in the Bible? I, I think this is the fascinating question. Why, when you get to Revelation and you get to chapter 17, the harlot appears. And you can remember the harlot is sitting on this beast with blasphemous names and seven heads and ten horns, and this woman who's in purple and scarlet, she is called Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes, Mm -hmm. the earth's abominations. She's drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs. It's pretty obvious that this is Rome, but it's called Babylon. Right. In other parts where this is portrayed, it has a Sodom and Gomorrah kind of feel to it, the way it's destroyed. In other senses, and this is kind of the crazy part of this uh, this piece of Revelation, it seems like Jerusalem, because there's a line where mm-hmm. Jesus was crucified. So in some sense, you have wrapped up in this image of Babylon all the great cities that have in some way rebelled against God. 
or set mm-hmm. themselves up against God. It becomes the banner for the anti-God city. And I think there are several reasons for this. I, the first one being Babel is the first city to set itself up against God in the Bible. Right. And yes. you might say this is retrospective, but if we just take the text at, at face value, this first city is a precursor of Babylon itself, but also of every city that will set itself up against God. So it's fitting that this Babel, Babylon motif will run right. through all of Scripture for cities that set themselves up against God. The second thing is, I, I think we need to return again to the point of, just how significant and how traumatic the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem is right. and the exile of the Jews in 586-587. Nebuchadnezzar comes in, they destroy the temple. This is the promised house of God that's built during Solomon's reign that has endured now for almost 400 years and is brought down, scattered. What does that mean for the presence of God? Has God forsaken his people? They're taken out of the promised land, scattered across the world, some taken to Babylon. This is the reverse of the Exodus. You know, God brings them out from dominion, puts them into the promised land. Mm -hmm. Now they're brought out from the promised land. They're put back under a yoke of slavery. And this is the undoing of Israel on a huge, huge scale. I think that's very true, Cole. I I think Babel, I I agree with both those points. Babel is the beginning and the paradigm for the anti-God city. But I do think we underestimate what a cataclysmic event that was. You know, the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom and deported 10 tribes before Nebuchadnezzar is even born. But they're not considered the poster child for anti-God activity. When Nebuchadnezzar conquers Judah and Jerusalem, he not only deports the people, but he also does such a Babel kind of thing. He tears down God's temple. He couldn't leave it alone. And that is not just a matter of, I'm conquering the people of God, I'm actually going to destroy God himself. I'm going to destroy Mm -hmm. the dwelling place of your God. Now, the Romans are going to do that too, far later in history. But by that time, the Romans begin to look like you are another Babylon. You're another manifestation. So I do think it goes back to the destruction of the temple in in a large way. Yeah, there's a a desecration, blasphemy aspect to this. Mm -hmm. They take, as we just read in Daniel, they take the vessels out of the temple They use them, they take the gold out of the temple, the bronze, all of this. They use it to finance the building of the city of Babylon. Um, It is made at the expense of God's people. And so not just the material goods, but the blood of the Jews. I mean, tens and tens of thousands of Jews are killed in the destruction of Jerusalem. What, you know, but, but I think we don't have the same affection we don't see the same importance of the things of god which are taken away melted down destroyed but but the bible definitely speaks to this so three times in these visits nebuchadnezzar takes vessels from the temple and in the book of nehemiah and the book of ezra three times the vessels are brought back to yes. jerusalem i mean this was a big big deal as they rebuild the temple 
Let me throw another thing your way, though. I think part of the reason that Babylon becomes so significant is because it does become the center of Jewish life during and after the exile. So one of the things that you realize in the book of Nehemiah is he, of course, is serving in the Persian court, as Daniel will do later as well. But when they get the decree to come back, not everybody comes back. And most of the people are not, at this point, in the Persian capital. They're still in Babylon. Mm -hmm. And that becomes, I mean, for the next 500 years, that becomes the center of Jewish scholarship and cultural life. So so the Babylonians, or the the Jews, get a little too comfortable becoming Babylonians. And you see a long history in Babylon of Jewish culture and identity. I mean, you get big time scholars that live there. You get the Babylonian Talmud, which is produced there. The, right. it, it becomes a place where they take refuge instead of Jerusalem. And so to bring in kind of a liberal bent on the scholarship, m- many liberal scholars think that almost the entire Old Testament is put together during this period. So right. you, you can get the read that this uh, Etimenanki ziggurat is the Tower of Babel because it's extant at this point in Babylon, and that story is written then, you know, in the exile. Mm-hmm. Of course, right. they think Daniel's written later. But what we can say, even if we reject that as revisionist, is many of the biblical books are compiled during this time. So we we could say that things like the Psalms don't find their final form. Not all the Psalms are written until the exile. Certainly, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, uh, they are not completed until the time of the exile. So there is a flavor that the exile carries, even over documents that were written far in advance of the exile, because mm-hmm. this was the time period when much of this was collected, put together, and the Jews started to cling to these documents because it's what they had to worship God without a temple. So, so the historical setting of the exile and being in Babylon also contributes to this. It becomes another center of Jewish life against, uh, instead of Jerusalem being the center of Jewish life. And I think part of what you read in the New Testament is a reaction to finding Babylon a little bit too comfortable. And in Revelation, it's unmasked for what it truly is. I mean, you get some very, very strong language against Babylon in the the book of Revelation. In fact, it's a stand-in for the destruction of the whole world that stands in opposition to God. I mean, the last song against Babylon, it says, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and found no more. And the harpist won't be heard anymore, and the craftsman will be found no more, and the sound of the mill won't be found anymore, and on and on and on and on. And it says, and in her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. So so at some point, Babylon becomes the stand-in for all the evil that's been done on the earth. And in chapter 19, there's rejoicing that God has avenged Babylon. And the kingdom of God has superseded. The new Jerusalem is coming down and is superseding the the kingdoms of the earth. And uh, they say, hallelujah, 
For salvation and glory and power belong to our God, and his judgments are true and just, and he has judged the great prostitute, again, the way that Babylon was described, who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Yeah, I think, you know, kind of summarizing, because I think that's a good point you make, is that kingdoms come and kingdoms go, and people get conquered, they get taken into captivity and uh, are killed in wars. But Babylon is a sign of far more than just conquest. It's more than conquest of bodies and domination of people. It is a battle for the hearts and the minds and literally the soul of the people. It wants total domination of people. It wants worship of people. And in that sense, Babylon becomes the paradigm of a society that doesn't just conquer people. It wants the worship of people. And in that sense, it really is the Antichrist. It certainly stands alone in the Bible for its outsized role, for the grandeur, for the personality of Nebuchadnezzar. As we mentioned earlier, it comes to a defeat that very much follows what Revelation 18.10 says. Your downfall will occur within a single hour. And next week on the podcast, we're going to cover the Persians, who are the ones that uh, lead the charge in conquering Babylon and some of the interesting figures that show up in the Bible from the Persian Empire. We could at the same time say that the Persians under Cyrus are the most benevolent of the ancient empires. And we could also say that they prefigure the destruction of Babylon in the book of Revelation when they destroy Babylon in the 6th century BC. We'll cover that next time on the So He's Big Podcast. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.